Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz. We've got, we've got a little team this week. Uh, where is everybody? No one else is working right now. Everybody else is slacking. Anyway, it's myself. It's Johnny Long. How are you, Johnny? I'm good, thanks, Kaylee. And Ronan McLaughlin, how are you? I'm good. I'm a I'm a graveler again. I gravel oh, really over the weekend. Ooh. Yes. On, on Have a you broken bike. anything? No, no, no. But for, no? Well, actually, my leg has been a little bit sore, but I think it's completely <laughs> unrelated. I think it might be the cold or something. I hope it's unrelated. The last time I saw you on a gravel bike, Ronan, was in Copenhagen, where you tried to, instead of sort of carry your bike up the stairs, you tried to just sprint up this, like, not even a path, just up this bank and mm. very nearly sort of crocked your leg again. And I saw the fear of God in your eyes. <laughs> the problem there was I got halfway and then remembered that I'd just recovered from a broken leg. <laughs> Had I not remembered that, it would have been, yeah, it was just a wee run-up. But uh, I actually forgot about that gravel ride. I thought the weekend was my first gravel ride. But yeah, we had that spin in Copenhagen that, yeah, it wasn't really gravel, was it? It was kind of... Fields. Yeah, it was a city ride with a bit of dirt thrown in somewhere. <laughs> Are you going to be one of those people who can like feel when the weather's about to change, Ronan, in your leg? Uh, that, that, you know, you could be onto something there. I hadn't, hadn't thought about that, but the weather is definitely changing. We've got a calm before the storm here today. The storm was yesterday and tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> stuck in the middle at the moment. We've been over this. Uh, it's your fault for living where you live. Uh, rain's too much. Anyway, we've got, we've got fair amount to talk about on the podcast today. We are going to be chatting about... Well, the Giro d'Italia route was announced yesterday. We're going to be talking about that, who it might suit. I think the answer to that is relatively clear. The question is whether he'll be there. We're also going to talk about Mark Cavendish being linked to B&B Hotels dash KTM and talk about whether we think that that is a done deal or still floating around or what's going on there. So we'll, we'll talk about a bit of Cav future here. Bianchi has a new road bike. It's not UCI compliant, uh, and Ronan's going to tell us a bit about that. And we've got a bit on some pro supplier rumors, drivetrains, who's going to be riding what next year. We'll get to that at the end of the show. Before we do, I have been asked by our esteemed membership coordinator, Andy Van Bergen, to mention to all of you a pretty incredible offer that we've got going. And actually, I shouldn't say that in present tense. It starts in two days. <laughs> As of October 20th, from October 20th to October 27th, you will be able to pick up a Second Tips Fellow Club membership for only $9.99 US dollars. That is not $999, although you're welcome to give us that much if you want to. That is $9.99 US, and that is for a full year and is a savings of about $75. So that gives you that gets you past the paywall on the site. It also supports everything that we do here at Cycling Tips, and we massively appreciate it. So, sometime between October 20th and October 27th, if you are not already a Velo Club member, you are not already past that paywall. Head over to the site and sign up because that offer will be available to you. All right, let's get on with the show. Here, we're going to kick off with a couple little news items. <laughs> I feel like I need to change my tone of voice for this particular one because I've been sort of upbeat and jovial thus far. And I'm about to tell you that Mario Cipollini is going to jail. Maybe we should be upbeat and jovial about that. Who wants to tell me about this? Johnny, can you tell me why Chip was going to jail? 
He's uh, Mario Cipollini after a long sort of protracted court case over three years, the very slow turning wheels of Italian justice. Um, he's been found guilty on charges of violence and stalking, sentenced to three years in jail and ordered to pay 85,000 euros in fines. Um, it was allegations uh, brought to Cipollini by his wife, well, his former wife from 1993 to 2006. There's Ian's written the story up on our website, lots of sort of basically a domestic violence case. All horrible details have all played out in court. One of those cases where no one really wins. And, you know, even though, and who knows if he'll actually go to jail, if it'll be a custodial or suspended sentence. Um, yeah, but and, yeah, and it sounds like he's appealing. It'll sit in the in the in the system for a, uh, quite a while. But when you when you when you read the alleged facts of this case, uh, it you it's it's difficult to come away with any feeling other than mm. Chippo probably deserves to go to jail. Allegedly, it it's some pretty nasty stuff. So yeah, we can't really make any jokes about this because it's gross. Well, and also he's it's it's kind of odd because he's obviously such a big figure in cycling. So until leading up to being like found guilty while he was the trial was going on he was still being invited to you know vip cycling events like in in the piece there's a picture of him at, uh from november 2021 where he was at a monte carlo cycling festival and there's a picture of him the prince of monaco Froome, and tade pagacha just all mm. stand at the front so it's just like i mean obviously it's innocent until proven guilty but it's one of those weird cycling things where there are questionable pe- questionable people and until they until they're actually locked up, that's probably the only thing stopping them from sort of going to these events. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the court has decided, and again, this is ahead of a, of a likely appeal, but the court has decided that he is guilty of these things. And so he deserves to go to jail for three years. Um, he is uh, allegedly, maybe cover your children's ears here, a real piece of shit. So with that, let's move on to a funnier story. So <laughs> news broke. Was it Monday morning mm. of Benoit Cosnefroy's broken arm, uh, which apparently happened at a, well, depending on your choice of English, either a bachelor party or a stag do <laughs> something just ahead of his wedding, a big party. There's much concern uh, for both himself and for his fiance, who would now have to marry a, a one-armed man. Uh, but it turns out this wasn't true. Yeah, I didn't realize until I actually read the piece on it after you'd alerted Ian. Um, yeah, it was a it was a prank. You know what? You know how Benoit Cosnefar is with his pranks. Um, so him and his his stag dudes. In French, it's called an enterrement de vie de garçon. Which Ian has in brackets put a bucks party. So I imagine is that what they call it in Australia? Which sound a bucks party just sounds <laughs> Well, stag do and a bucks party, aren't those the same thing? Yeah, but st- I've yeah. never heard of a bucks party. No. But yeah. So then French is abbreviated to an E V G, which mm. also sound which doesn't sound fun at all. That just sounds not fun. <laughs> that sounds like a paperwork you fill out to get your driving license or something. Or a medical um, procedure of some sort. Yeah. yeah. Or a French train. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was. It was a prank, and they a classic French prank. But it, but it was quite involved. It was quite involved because there was like a press release. There was a, so basically a bunch of a bunch of Benoit Cosnefra's friends decided it would be funny to tell the whole world, including his fiance, that he had broken his arm at his buck do, 
<laughs> and then rolled it back like eight hours later after everyone sort of totally freaked out. And like, I just, you have to appreciate the, mm. the length the to which these fellas went to push this thing all the way to its absolute limit before I would assume they got some very angry phone calls from somebody uh, asking who had let him break his arm. Uh, and then, <laughs> and then, and then it all sort of began to unravel. I also found out, found out that um, Kosnov was one of his nicknames is the Sherborg Cheetah, which Ooh. is, mm. you know, that's something. Cheetah, <laughs> cheetah is in the animal, not like he's a uh, you know a cheater. falsify. Yeah, a cheetah. Ah, I think large a cat. <laughs> Moving on, uh, we've got a couple of little news items here. Uh, Davide Rebelin. His last week of bike racing was last week. And in fact, Johnny, you were you were in and around and near him for his last week of bike racing. For those that don't recall, Davide is 51 yep. years old, uh, had a pretty terrible accident this year, kind of shattered his leg into a bunch of pieces and has decided that at 51, it is time to finally hang up his wheels. Johnny, did he seem particularly emotional over the last week? What, what was... What was Davide Rebelin like? Um, yeah, so after the Gravel World Championships, uh, tied into that whole thing was the Giro del Veneto and Veneto Classic, like Filippo Pazzato's week of Italian racing. Um, and after the Gravel World Championships, that was kind of a big affair. You had these smaller one-day races. So effectively, a lot of the time, it was the start was in like a small field somewhere in the Veneto region, and it was David Rebelin getting changed in the front of a, a van. So sort of like a full circle from the beginning to the end of his career, which I guess is quite poetic. On the on the Vinita Classic on Sunday, he got brought to the front and there was no one really joined him. I thought like maybe someone would come and like, but it was just him on his own just while everyone sort of applauded and there's lots of dance music. And it, he also, he seems to be ready to leave it all behind, I think. Do we know what he's going to do next? I mean, 51. <laughs> he's, he's yeah. Masters racing. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, at, at the gravel worlds, he was he was originally going to do an age group, but then he decided. I think mm. it worked out that then he had to do the elite or something like that. So he was already trying to do masters racing, but they didn't let him. <laughs> Sad for him. Sad for him. Well, uh, a long and storied and somewhat, uh, some occasionally scandalous career for for David Reblin that we don't need to go into the details of, but. Frankly, it's just it's just phenomenally impressive that the man made it to 51 years old racing in in pro races. Not not, you know, not just racing, racing at a professional level to 51 years old is is I think I mentioned this on maybe last week's episode or the, or the week before. But it's just to me, it's impressive that anybody can love bike racing that much, like the act of doing bike racing and all of the difficulties and, and pain and hardship that comes with it around the actual bike race. To stick with it for that long, I, I find just sort of deeply impressive. Uh, and the statistics about his career are mind-boggling as well. Like he, he first sort of came into uh, my consciousness when he won the the Ardennes Triple Crown in what two thousand and four. So really before I had started racing, even, uh, and I finished racing quite a long time ago. <laughs> he was winning the Triple Crown, and he had been a pro for I don't know twelve years before that. Uh, I think he was he was a pro before eighty percent of the start list for Sunday's Vanito Classic were even born, uh, which is just <laughs> insane. Uh, and yeah, I think it was on a GCM video yesterday. I heard these stats. He 
he's raced something like 1600 race days uh 250,000 race kilometers it's just absolutely mind-boggling on pro cycling stats his his um his race statistics go back to 1988 which is the same year my wife was born <laughs> and i was just one one year old so um that's the yeah. same year i was born ronan mm, same year same year my wife and my boss both my bosses were born <laughs> won his first race of 61 in 1993, the Hofbrau Cup, and then uh, in 95 and 96, went on to win the stage of the Giro del Trentino and won his first Giro stage in 1996. So, yeah, a like I said, a long and storied and occasionally controversial career from Davide Rebelin. Uh, hats off. I, I don't know what else we could say about about. He's he's a man of spanned, you know. Almost sort of like pre-EPO era and then kind of the worst era of professional cycling and has come out the other side and is still going. And I think that there's something <laughs> to be appreciated about that, I guess. Didn't it one, he's, a, he's of course Italian, but didn't it at one point also represent Argentina because he couldn't get selected for the Italian squad for Worlds and Olympics and those sorts of things? So I'm pretty sure... He either tried to change his nationality or was it did successfully change his nationality to Argentinian for at least a couple of seasons. Um, but then I do know that, of course, some of the issues that he had that we won't go into came from his appearance in the 2008 Olympics, which I seem to remember him wearing an Italian jersey for. So maybe he never actually got around to changing his nationality, but he, he did attempt it at one point because he had some sort of falling out with the Italian national team selectors. But kind of... Similar to Valverde last week, you got to wonder, you know, why bother retiring at this point? Like you've gone so long, you're still <laughs> the best rider on your team. Why not just keep going? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. That's a good question. I, I feel like we've we've danced around it a couple. Of, we actually should mention. Yeah. So so he uh, he, he served a ban for doping related to um, an EPO Sarah. If you guys remember that old standby uh epo sarah positive from the beijing olympics and actually was he was busted quite a bit later those samples from beijing were frozen and then unfrozen and tested once they had a test for epo sarah uh and yeah that's why he that's why he was banned so he still denies ever having taken any of these any 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 substances um but he did uh, because it was in his blood. <laughs> so so he served a doping ban and came back. And uh, I think there was, you know, it was around a similar time when there were a number of Italians uh, getting getting busted and stopped. It's basically like ceasing their careers. And so everyone was kind of assuming like, OK, well, David Davide Reblin will, will, will probably do the same thing. And he didn't. That was like 10 years ago now or 15 years ago now. And he will he will he continued on. Well, well, well beyond what anyone thought that he would possibly do. Now, with that, that's enough about the 51-year-old world's greatest Masters racer. We've got one more little news item here. Uh, Johnny, you wrote a story about this last week. And the response, I think, is, was, was really interesting. Most people seem to be quite angry about this. British Cycling has a new... Is it a title sponsor? Just a new major sponsor, I would say. They don't really do title sponsors at... at governing bodies which is shell the giant petroleum company can you talk a little bit about well 
the reaction to this as well as maybe like where it came from and why? The where it came from and why is basically that I think British Cycling have been, been without a sponsor for about a year since the big bank HSBC, who also are like quite a, uh, what's the controversial sort of organization. They do a lot of money, allegedly do a lot of money laundering. I don't know if it's proven or not, but they're a big bank with lots of money. So best to be safe. Um, so I guess Shell came along as one of the sort of only people willing to sponsor them or able to sponsor them. And for the big wigs at British Cycling, it was like either we take this money or we don't have jobs. So that's, I guess, the thinking from from their point of view. Uh, The reaction was quite... Oh, sorry. Sorry, I'm going to interrupt you. I thought that part of the reason why British Cycling is so dominant at things like the Olympics and track... Uh, and a number of other places is that isn't aren't aren't isn't your 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 your, your oh, body lottery. funded by the lottery? Like, why do you need HSBC or Shell or whatever? Because like I we've always compared British cycling to, for example, USA cycling. British cycling has millions and millions and millions of dollars, and USA cycling has like six pennies and a dime they found underneath the couch cushions. That's been that sort of like relative mm, understanding of finances question. for these two things. Are they just so do they do they need this money? Do we do? Well, you you guess so, right? Because otherwise, what would be the, what would be the point of all that? Ag Ronan seems. Do you know more? Uh, I know that the lottery funding doesn't exist to the same extent that it did previously, and quite a lot mm. of the success around Beijing and London and Rio, if I remember right, was built on that lottery funding, and that has been cut back. Um, other sports have been getting looked after. I think the general pot is actually just, whether it's smaller or not, I'm not sure, but rel- you know, comparatively speaking, with inflation all factored in, it's probably smaller than what it used to be. Uh, and I know certainly that some of the exclusive sort of expertise and manufacturing capabilities that British Cycling had access to in the past that they could basically keep to themselves because they, they had enough money to ensure that those expertise didn't want to go looking for work elsewhere. Uh, they just don't have that same exclusivity anymore because they don't have the money to uh, tie these people and manufacturers down to contracts just to work for British Cycling. So they probably, to get back to the same level of success that they enjoyed previously, given that that was built on so much financial backing, they they probably, you know, same, same as you were saying, Johnny, but if they want to keep their jobs, they need to, uh, take this money and the same thing if they want to keep their jobs they need to be successful so they need to take this money which you know ultimately you could you, we could open a whole other can of worms there about whether you know well yeah <laughs> let's not even get into that but basically I think <laughs> both in terms of jobs and success they needed more money is are the payouts from the lottery system related to like the previous Olympic cycle success because that's how it is here. Basically, the U.S. Olympic yeah. Committee will will give U.S. Cycling more money if they win medals, and if they don't win any medals. So, like for example, you know, if if they win a silver at the Team Pursuit or whatever, um, that's worth like a million bucks. I've just I've just invented those numbers, but it's something <laughs> like that, right? Like the a good result results in actual cash, and so therefore, sort of like continues the cycle. Is that a similar system in, in with British Cycling? Uh, it certainly was at at one point. It's not something I've it's not something I've followed with British Cycling for a long time, and only really came back into my mind last week when I seen Shell the, the Shell story pop up. I was like, oh yeah, maybe they, 
need some money again to start winning more again because you know they used to dominate the team and individual pursuit uh, and at least on the men's side last week's team pursuit world championships victory was their first since 2018 uh, and now two decades ago for British cycling to have won any team pursuit world championship would have been you know would have been big big news but the big news based on the last two decades is that it's actually four years since they last won one um so they you know their their dominance on the track has certainly dwindled over the past few years i'm sure they wanted to get that back um and, and yes they're at least at one point their funding was directly tied to you know how successful the, the previous olympics had been uh, and of course you know if if that was the case i'm sure it would have been the case for all sports and then you consider how successful you know great britain were as a nation in london in particular uh, then there surely would have been other sports that were calling for that same funding for the rio cycle um which maybe add into the british cycling pot now, I, I don't know if the same system is still in place. It could well be related to how many medals you got previously, but certainly in my time with Cycling Ireland, we were always trying to get to a point where, you know, it's a bit of a chicken and egg. Like if you reward success, well, how do you get to the success in the first place if you, know, if you need the money to maintain your position there? So, you know, we were always trying to strike that balance and get to a place where you could actually fund the athletes and the programs that needed the funding rather than the athletes and the programs that were successful previously and the, the biggest challenge of second Ireland is that the athletes and programs weren't usually successful in the olympics so <laughs> maybe we were just looking for another way around that problem but the sort of more interesting thing about this for me was the response johnny not not to not to take you on a, a, a bit of a tangent there ronan but johnny the response to this was very negative uh which they probably could have foreseen i feel like i feel like they maybe could have you know stuck a finger in the air and and taken the uh <laughs> taking the temperature of their members but based on our comment section alone underneath your story it was quite clear to me that there are a lot of British cycling members who are not all that pleased about a giant multinational petrochemical company being the sponsor of their bicycle organization is that accurate yeah and i think it just shows how sort of desperate they were for the money because you you know anyone could have realized that it was going to go down poorly and especially at with sort of British cycling and its members, there's just a lot of discontent over the past few years over what the members see as, as the British scene and the domestic scene is sort of cratered and like dipped from the 2012 Olympics, Tour de France, boom. It sort of naturally dipped, but just with their uh, like historic races sort of dying out and no one really plugging the gaps to, to keep the scene going. So I think from all of that sort of bubbling anger, it's finally there's something to actually like be hold up and be like, this is bad. And this is what I'm canceling my membership over. Um, and yeah, just a lot of discontent with, I think it just, it typifies how, how it's all going and, and that sort of thing. But then at the same time, it's hard for a, a central organization system to actually uphold a whole scene. It's not as simple as just being like, they just need to, provide money and do things because they're small compared to all these races going on all over our admittedly small countries you pointed out before we started <laughs> recording yeah i mean it's, it's not too surprising right it's you're 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 in the the downward slope after the greatest period 
uh, your nation has ever had uh, in, in professional cycling, I should say, uh, and particularly men's professional and, cycling. And with an asterisk by it. And with, and with, with some asterisks in there, you know, but like Wiggins, Cav, uh, that, that, is a, that is an era that will be very, very difficult to replicate in the same way that the U.S. had a very similar response uh, and downward slope after our own uh, peak from about 1999 to 2005, uh, it slowly it slowly disintegrated from there. And you know now where are we? Right, we've got no tour of no, no tour of California. Tour of Georgia is gone. Tour of Colorado slash USA Pro Cycling Challenge is gone. Uh, yeah, it's just a it's a tough thing when you have a big boom and bust like that, right? And so from that perspective. I guess it is somewhat understandable that British Cycling would 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 go looking for cash so they could try to fix these things, but yeah, the the response was predictable. <laughs> it, it was also and, it was also valid. the way it was yeah. communicated. Yeah, uh, because there's sort of it took, like when I was writing the story, I sort of had a quick Google of you know British Cycling sustainability, British Cycling environmental campaign, and within like five seconds, you've got the commercial director being like, you know, we really want to listen to our members. And obviously cycling is such a great sort of ve- literal vehicle for environmental sustainability that, you know, we're, this, we're going to make this a central point of whatever they're doing. And then within like 12 months, he's like, yeah, you know, Shell are going to help us go carbon neutral <laughs> or, net, or net zero or whatever. And, you know, they're, they're so great at helping community driven projects. And it's just like, don't like I think it's this the it's the it's the sort of the barefaced lies where it's just like look you took the sort of dirty money just you gotta lean into it you know it's like the uh the the sky ocean plastic campaign going into Ineos <laughs> yeah. like, like six months later uh just a bit of mild hypocrisy no big deal well, and then and then Ethan Hayter's dad was sort of uh tweeting being like well you know Belgium's uh, national federation is sponsored by ESSO or ExxonMobil or someone. And where's the uproar for that? And it's like, well, maybe they are on Belgian Twitter, Belgian cycling Twitter, but none of us speak <laughs> Dutch or read Dutch. So we can't, we don't know. And it's kind of by the, by the point, like obviously cycling is filled with all these, these sponsors, but doesn't mean that an extra one on top of the pile is any better, you know? Yeah, and I think it was the it was the hypocrisy that that really got to people, right? It was the the sustainability initiatives followed up by a Shell sponsorship, and then when the thing was launched, them talking about how Shell was going to help them go carbon neutral. Um, Shell doesn't want you to go carbon neutral. Shell <laughs> sells carbon. Uh, I don't. I don't. I don't know what's so difficult to understand about. Yes, Shell's doing lots of interesting. Like they're actually like they're building EV charging points and things all over the world, and they're doing lots of things. As a percentage of their actual business, you're talking about just a minuscule little piece of of what they actually do, which is pull oil out of, out of the ground, sell it to us so we can burn it and turn it into things and all the rest. And they're not carbon neutral, sort of by definition. Um, the interesting thing as well is that, you know, British Cycling, is, it is a member's organization at the end of the day, um, maybe in not quite to the level that it should be. And I think their board works slightly differently than certainly than Cycling Ireland's does. But the interesting thing is that actually British Cycling members do have another choice as well in Cycling UK, which is another sort of charitable organization that promotes cycling and isn't, you know, isn't the UCI recognized uh, governing body for cycling in Britain, but quite a lot of members, you know, that, that won't really 
impact their decision making whether the, the body is recognized by the UCA or not. And pretty second could very quickly find themselves in, you know, in bother if there's a mass exodus of members. It, you know, it, it may seem on paper like the most important thing is success at the Olympics, but at the end of the day, it, you know, it's the members that own the organization. And um, if they start disappearing, there, there will, there, you know, there could be difficult times ahead for British cycling. It's oh, it's fine. Know. We should move on. I mean, you know, there are more Americans listening to this podcast than any other nationality, and they yeah. probably don't care about this at all. <laughs> I was, th- uh, I was just thinking that. <laughs> <laughs> so, for the sake of all of you listening out there, we're gonna we're gonna move on from. It's greenwashing. Uh, it's just come no, back to Ronan, me. You're fired. <laughs> give me, give me one second because this is actually quite important in that okay, there could be okay. a quite a lot of British cycling members sort of disillusioned with just how difficult and how expensive it has become to both organize and enter races in the UK. Uh, and, you know, there's all sorts of uh, just new safety measures, which obviously are a good thing, but to the extent that quite a lot of British racing now has been forced onto motor racing circuits. Uh, and, you know, that, I know that was already an issue with a lot of British cycling members, just how costly it was to end. Like you could be talking about a one hour race on a motor racing circuit that could be 40 or 50 pound to enter, which is just, you know, it, so they, there might've already been a lot of members who are thinking, well, you know, British cycling should be proactive in ensuring we didn't get to this place. They should have been proactive in ensuring that we didn't need Shell's money to continue having Olympic success, and they were proactive in neither. And now we find ourselves where we can't enter a race, and for our pros to enter a race, they have to have a Shell logo on their shoulders. Yeah, I, U.S. has the same problem. Our races are too expensive. Uh, I did the math recently because I wanted to just go to one mountain bike race, and I would need a, a license and the the registration, like the day registration of the actual race, you know, plus driving there, whatever else it was going to be like $180 for me to race, mm-hmm. <laughs> race one mountain bike race. And so I didn't, uh, and I think, yeah, so the, the same problems are, are, are rearing their heads on both sides of the Atlantic here. Now I'm going to officially move on from <laughs> our little greenwashing story. And we're going to head into what was supposed to be the bulk of the episode Although we're now 35 minutes in and we haven't talked about it yet. The Giro route was announced on Monday. Johnny, you watched the very long and very weird route announcement thing that happened. Um, how, how was that? How, how, how was the... It was weird. It was weird. Yeah, there was were, there were sort of coverage on GCN where there was either no sound or there was a, a woman translating over the top, but sort of very off the cuff. Like not like she had a script in front of her, like she was literally having to listen, and and it was just it was just the most sort of like d- disharmonious <laughs> performance that I've ever seen. No discredit to her, obviously, obviously it was probably very tough, especially with the way that the Italians announced the race, where it's like we're entering dreamland now as we approach the. It's like oh my god, just tell me, tell me what stage four is. But yeah, the route got announced. It's sort of there's it's time trial heavy. As the uh, Giro sort of hopes to coax Remco Evanapol uh, to Italy in May. Uh, there's also a time trial very close to the Slovenian border, but that probably won't be enough to uh, get Tade Pogacar on the start line because he's got to go back and win the tour off Vingogo and Jumbo Visma. But maybe a Primoz Roglic could, could be there or you have sort of Geraint Thomas for Ineos. Basically, it's mm. GC guys who 
obviously can climb very well in the top however many riders in the world, but also can time trial and take minutes there. So the start line could be more interesting than we've seen in the past few years. I think it's a pretty fascinating course because it has these 70 kilometers of time trialing, which mm. is is a lot. It's a lot of time trialing for a modern Grand Tour. But at the same time, it also, it's got, in the last week, it go, there's climbs going over 2,000 meters a couple different times. It's got it's got a f- huge amount of climbing in it as well. So it's got this sort of weird split between you're going to have to be able to time trial exceptionally well, but there is enough climbing that a pure time trialist will 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 struggle. Right? It's not a it's not a Bradley Wiggins tour, right? Um, and yeah, that's going to make enough. it. A, yeah, it's it's going to make it a really interesting kind of like push and pull tug of war <laughs> between two different types of rider, perhaps and. I think you're absolutely right in that it appears that Giro organizers have tailored it a bit for certain individuals. Uh, I think in particular Remco really on paper, like the, the, the two that the two that would, would really, really love this Giro are not going to be there. Right. Jonas Vingigo, uh and Tade Pogaccia, the last two winners of the Tour de France who are two of the best time trials in the world and two of the best, climbers in the world i don't think we're gonna see them show up at the jira this year but it is it's 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 a perfect it's a perfect course for for riders like that could could we see i I was just sort of thumbing through who 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 might be there and who might be interesting do we have any sense for whether ega bernal is going to be back at all or by then or because it's another one where he's not He's not going to love 70k of time trialing, but you know, back in his back in his day, he was not a terrible time trialist, and he would certainly love the multiple times over 2,000 meters that they're going to be hitting in the last week. Do have we heard anything about him recently? No, not really. Not since he went. I think he went back to Colombia for some further surgery uh, for his off season, but we haven't heard any anything more. Um, I think the Giro would probably come too early. You know, I. I think, I mean, it's impossible to know how, what, in what, what state he's going to return properly to racing. I mean, he raced a few this year. Um, but then the, the question for Ineos as well is, you know, they've already sent Geraint to the tour against Pogaccia and Vingegaard. And he, while he you know, raced well, he was a distant third. And Geraint is sort of, he's slowly winding down his career. There were some quotes, I think a Velo News interview with him either last week or the week before, basically him saying like, maybe next year's my final year. So the question is, does he want to aim for a third place at the tour or does he want to go to the Giro and sort of see how he can do against Evan Apol? He's, you know, maybe in that third week, the the third week is way more mountainous and tricky than the Vuelta was uh, this year. So it's a completely different challenge. And so maybe, maybe we see Thomas going for that. I think that'd be a cool way to sign off your career, really. With a Giro win? Yeah, not, not a yeah. bad way. I'm not, I'm not totally convinced that Remco will go. I'm still not totally convinced that he won't that he won't be at the Tour de France next year. Uh, you know, I I think it's more likely that he's at the Giro, but I'm it's not as it's not a zero percent chance of of him going to the Tour because if you look at at if you look at just Patrick Lefevre's quotes over the last six months or so, he's he's talked about that in the last six months about about next year being Remco's year. Now that doesn't mean it's actually going to be the case, but I it. it, it I, I I wouldn't if I was the Giro I would not be putting all of my chips in that basket that 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 Remco is going to show up on the start line. I think it would still make 
the most sense to take the Giro as as his target for next season. You know, but so much will depend on just you know the the pressure coming from the Belgian public and you know pressure from sponsors and all sorts. So you know, we know not always what makes the most sense is is what we end up seeing the riders having to do. But I wouldn't, I I I would probably like to see him target the Giro and then maybe look to start the tour with you know no GC ambitions, just you know gaining experience and because realistically speaking, as phenomenal as he is right now. Do we see him beating Bogaccia or Vinigo at the Tour? Probably not. Do we see him winning this Giro on this course? Definitely there's a high probability that he could. Counterpoint, why wait? If you've got if you've got five, six, seven, eight years of at the top of your game and winning the Tour takes not only uh, the sort of the physiology and the ability, but also generally a fair amount of luck, why not give yourself every single opportunity to potentially win the tour as opposed to pop off and, and do the Giro instead, you know, like you never know what's going to happen to, t- yeah, you know, yeah, you never know what's going to happen to Tade Pogaccia and you never know what's going to happen to Ving- to Jonas Vingigo. Maybe they have bad summers. Maybe they crash. Maybe they get sick, maybe whatever. And then it's Remco's year and he wins a tour. Right. And maybe if he doesn't, if he's not there, you can't win it. So that, that's just, I wonder if that will weigh on him because I don't, it feels to me like he's ready for a Tour de France run, right? The dude, I mean, he just won a world championship and a Vuelta, right? Like how more, how much more ready do you need to be to, to go take on the Tour de France? I don't necessarily see any real reason for him to not try unless he just wants, he values at this point, the sort of the higher probability of success at the Giro. But I say, go for it. The Tour personally i think the reason would be just continue the momentum that he has you know he's let's not forget he did come back from a serious injury and he has had this huge pressure on him since he turned pro as a junior to you know to deliver success and now he is finally delivering success rather than you know step up to the biggest race on the planet with all the added uh stress and sort of difficulties that come with performing at the tour continue the momentum you've got go to the zero aim to add a grand tour a second grand tour victory at this you know what is some people's favorite race of the year the zero d'italia and you know he is still so young he could still have another 10 goes to the tour de france after not targeting it for 2023 so i'd be more inclined to you know just just considering again the, the sort of belgian fans and media and everything all the pressure that he is going to have anyway as world champion and the next eddie marks <laughs> let's let's keep that the next eddie marks question you know keep answering it in the right way by winning a giro than going to tour and maybe you know i i, I don't i don't even think remco or quickstep or anybody at that level would be looking at pogaccia looking at vinigo and either thinking they're not up to that level i'm sure remco thinks he is better than they are and and they also don't look at them and hope that their competitors suffer bad luck or have bad form whatever they want to just beat them on the road so i don't think that will come into it at all but i do think they might just you know look at the giro as the next logical step in his progression and the belgian newspaper het last news uh, suggested another belgian name that could potentially look at the giro due to the number of time trial kilometers and that is Wout Van Aert. 
Wat, sorry, Wout Van Aert. It's so such a shocking name to suggest that it got lost in my throat. Um, but yeah, that's pretty that great. would be that. That it, it absolutely reeks of Belgian newspaper off season, where they just <laughs> need to fill, you know, pages of their physical newspapers they have to sell every day. But that would be quite something, and I kind of like how it fits into the narrative of like Remco and Wout Van Aert have you know made up and they're friends, but then Wout Van Aert's going to go and try and beat him at the Giro. <laughs> It, he's not. <laughs> God, don't uh, you're trying to put the Belgian press out of uh, out of business, Kelly. Uh, you gotta let this. You gotta let this roll for like at least I two mean, mu- two uh, months. We just lost Ronan. There he is. My Wi-Fi refused to let me hear that White Van Aert is now a Grand Tour contender. <laughs> it just immediately <laughs> cut me off. <laughs> we lost. We lost Ronan for a second there. Uh, no, 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 it's not happening. Uh, have they? So here's the here's the funny thing about that that particular headline, right? Is like, like they've cle- somebody's clearly seen seventy time trial kilometers. Great, they have failed to look at the entire last week of the Giro, <laughs> where Wavanar will will not be a happy camper in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but like you, Johnny, I appreciate. Belgian presses uh the commitment the commitment to the bit you gotta stick yeah. with the bit and they do <laughs> and so kudos they, to them they did not for... stick with the route presentation they watched the first 13 stages and were like oh, I can't do any more of this I got it <laughs> it's a wild fun art year for sure yeah, yeah. Mm, forget, forget the fact that you know stage 20 is a time trial but has uh what is it about half of it up a huge mountain yeah it's <laughs> yeah. crazy <laughs> It's crazy. <laughs> up to what 1800 meters uh which is obviously the most interesting stage of the entire route and you know with the bad news for kayla here is that he has to find the budget to send myself the time trialing and uphill resident expert uh, <laughs> <laughs> to to that stage of the you know there's 10k flat into a 10k climb it's like you might, the gradients are crazy. You you might yeah, actually have to go ahead, sorry. Uh, they, they 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 compared the middle of it to or they compared it to the middle of the Zonkalon, I think it was, um, gradient wise. So that gives you an idea of how how difficult that second half, that second 10k is gonna be. It's like hits 15%, sits I've, at like 12 for a while. Ugh. Is there no is so, there- Perhaps it's another climb, and there, there's so many climbs and figures and that thrown about, but there's definitely one climb of next year's Giro that has five kilometers out of an average of 15%. Uh, and uh, I, 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 I do think it is a time trial. So that's... Uh, is that really uh, a time trial, or is that just the way it would have been had they started together in a way? Because, you know, at, at that, <laughs> right. those sorts of gradients, everybody is on their own regardless. So road bike, time trial bike, what do you think? It's certainly, I would say, time trial bike into the base of the climb, and then switch a, bikes. a road bike to the to the top. It's it's just too long. Although it's undulating before the climb, it's eleven kilometers, and it's just too far on a on a road bike. I think there mm. certainly will be changes, which of course is just going to be fascinating. <laughs> yeah, that's the best bit. That's the best bit. Of the time trial. Ronan's so excited. Uh, he's so excited. All right, we're going to move on from the Giro. Uh, we, we have months to talk about the Giro and we'll, we'll go into, into much depth ahead of the actual race, but now you know what it is. It's got some big, big, big climbs. It's got quite a bit of time trialing. Although as Ronan said, 10 of those 70 kilometers are actually uphill. So they're not, not sure that really counts. So really like 60 K of flat time trialing and Remco might be there. 
it would be good to see him there because like, I, I mean, who doesn't want to see the rainbow bands at the front of a grand tour, right? That that's something that I think we can all agree that is a good thing for the sport is a good thing for us fans. Um, I still think you should go to the tour, but we'll agree to disagree Ronan. Moving on to our last, no, not our last major topic of the day. We have a couple things left. Although I think given time, I might just cut some of them out. They might just disappear and show up in next week's episode. Johnny, uh, we've got additional rumors floating around of Mark Cavendish to B&B hotels, the French squad, the men in glass. Uh, for those who listen to this summer's Tour de France daily podcast, you will know who the men in glass are and what that means. But for those who forget, the men in the glass itself is a color. Uh, it's the mm-hmm. color of the sea off of Brittany. Uh, so, so Mark Cavendish might be wrapping himself in glass, uh, starting in 2023. First question, is this actually going to happen? And then we can get into what it might actually look like. Is it going to happen? Well, according to the, uh, the Dutchman over at Wheeler Flitz, uh, they've, they've had whispers that the men in glass went to try on their new kit this past week or last week, um, for next year. And apparently Mark Cavendish was there rubbing shoulders with, you know, Cyril Gauthier and Nicholas Prudhomme. No, he's AG2R. I don't know. Basically, we're going to get to get to know a lot more of these French pro team riders <laughs> next year because it looks like Cav is going there. And the, the, the money, the injection of cash, which is helping pay for Mark Cavendish and a whole bunch of other riders, apparently might now come from the French subsidiary of Amazon. Uh, and it's all going to be announced on the 26th of October, which I think is next Wednesday, Thursday. It's the off season. So I've kind of, I don't look at my calendar anymore. <laughs> every, it's just a, every day is a day of autumn and winter, but yeah, it looks like it's happening. Which um, do, do we, do we like this? Is this a good yeah. fit? Oh God, I mean, yeah. explain. Well, if it's a good fit is a, is another question. They're, they're apparently also signing the likes of Max Rikesi, who's going to be his lead out man. There's a couple of other guys. I think Case Bowl, he's, he's like more of a sort of second tier sprinter, but maybe they form, like they remold him into some sort of lead out guy for Mark Cavendish. I don't know. But the one thing, the thing that B&B will like about it is the fact that Mark Cavendish will almost entirely pay for whatever he's being paid because it will get them on the Tour de France star line in a year where with this whole promotion relegation thing it's going to be hotly contested for those wildcard places because Israel will drop down, not have a guarantee anymore. But then they have Chris Froome and maybe they'll try and sign someone to get them on the start line. So having Mark Cavendish basically means you get that start, that's that place on the start line. It also gives them the chance of being the team that breaks the record number of tour stage wins, which who, you know, who wouldn't want to be French sponsors. Yeah, exactly. What what celebration do you think is? You know how Cav did the HTC phone. Do you think he'll like do the ringing the doorbell and like hand you like, <laughs> the package? Back in back in two thousand, was it was it, was the phone in was that twenty eleven? Yeah, I think so. I believe it was twenty eleven. Oh nine. Yeah, that's right. Because it was twenty eleven was my first tour, and it was before that. So yeah, he's more than likely to do the you know the. The bad back celebration from sleeping on a B&B hotel's bed. <laughs> <laughs> Just give a little stretch. Give him a little yeah. stretch. Or 
Are B and B the ones where you can check in with the keypad? Like you don't even see a human being. Mm, yeah, mm. I think. Well, maybe the B and B budget, or <laughs> they all have different tiers within the actual brand, right? We stayed at a couple oh, yeah. B and Bs uh, at the Tour de France last year, I believe. So I love it. I, I mean, I. <sighs> I was deeply disappointed when he wasn't at the this year's Tour de France. I think that was a great shame. Um, and if he's got a bit of a lead out around him, he only needs one, right? Now, granted, mm. a lot of professional bike riders would like just one. It is it is not easy, and there's absolutely no guarantee that if you put him on the start line, he's actually going to win a stage. It would be pretty brutal, I think, if they show up and they just get, you know, a series of second to fifth or whatever that 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 Cav could get. But I think he could do it. And I think if they if they bring over the right riders, uh, I think they need to probably steal Michael Morku or something like that from <laughs> if they really want it to happen. But I don't see a better option, right? He's not gonna get he's not gonna get any he's not gonna get the chance at most of the teams in in the world tour, right? Because they've got something else going on. They've got a they've got a a yellow jersey contender and they've got another sprinter who's a better, a bigger guarantee or whatever. So going to a team like this where, you know, they're primarily riding for Pierre Roland uh, breakaway wins, <laughs> at least in the last couple of years, it's a blank slate, right? And I think it could work pretty well. They are actually well drilled in the lead out. It's just that they usually do it in the first kilometer of the race to get in the breakaway. And now they'll just have to do it in the final kilometer. So it'll take a bit of fatigue resistance built into their training and stuff, but they, 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 they could be up for it. I'm actually surprised... It, 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 Cavendish now just when we're talking here he seems like such a good fit for and this is no you know, all, all joking aside but Israel Premier Tech they they need the invite to the tour he is almost mm. going to guarantee it he's not really going to be taking the place of you know it, it, it's they're, they're not going there with a clear cut leader unless I'm forgetting someone obvious for next season and you know they're they're well used to having riders in the sort of twilight of their career or towards the end of their career. So um, don't be laughing, kid. I was trying to be as nice as possible. <laughs> Just putting, putting it mildly. Yeah. <laughs> they hire old riders regularly. So why mm. not hire another one? Who could secure their place in the Tour de France? If yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think it makes a lot of sense, frankly. Uh, and I, I am pretty sure, correct me if I'm wrong here, Johnny, I, I don't think Cav speaks French. Maybe a bit. No, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, uh, for any any fans of English football, they'll remember when Joey Barton went to manage in France, and he's uh, from he's from Liverpool, but he put on this affected French accent in English, so that he'd be easier to understand amongst the French press. Um, so I'm really just praying that uh, Mark Cavendish does that. We get we, I, we get so he continues to speak in English, but with a. Terrible French accent. Yeah, so like, uh, I am so happy. Oh, I, can't, I can't put the scouts into it, but I'm so happy to be a uh, men in class. <laughs> that sort of thing. Just like, it's going to be, whatever happens, it's just going to be amazing. Like if he wins, it'll be great. But if he is getting those like second or fifth places, he'll just be increasingly furious with all of the other men in glass for three weeks in France. And we'll, we'll all be there to see it and document it. I, I think Cav goes Can't into the wait. tour expecting to be second to fifth quite a lot, but what he needs is just the one chaotic sprint where mm. he has the mm. experience, he has the know-how and he just pulls off. You know, I, I, I think even Cavendish would admit that he is, you know, probably past the best that we even seen him at last year. Uh, but mm -hmm. it, it doesn't, this is the thing about, 
flipping sprinters that always annoyed me when I was racing is that they don't <laughs> need to be their best to win. They just need to get to the finish. And those guys, when they get within a sniff of the finish line, they can make it happen time and time again, regardless of how much they've suffered for the rest of the day or the stage or, whatever, or even the whole race. Cav could get an opportunity on the second last, on the last day. And oh, imagine. <laughs> there's your story for next year. <laughs> <laughs> we just break the internet. Uh, I love it. Luca Mazzato's stand to lose out the most because, you know, he was the random national, the Italian on a French team sprinter beforehand. And now we're going to have a Manx man sprinter Mm. on the French team. Thoughts and prayers. (laughs) But but it's going to work for BNB because, like, how we would barely have, we would barely speak about them. All the sort of English speaking press would barely speak about them. A lot of other press wouldn't. And now BNB Hotel is going to be just rolling off everyone's tongues for the next. Yeah, every every American headed to France for their yeah their summer vacation going to be staying at B and B hotels. Uh, as a as a personal as a personal aside, maybe consider a different hotel. Um, some some of them are some of them are fine, some of them are not. Let's <laughs> let's leave that there. Let's leave that there. Uh, you know, the big the big news here is that yeah, there's 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 real real ties between Mark Cavendish and B&B hotels. It's not a, it's not announced yet. It's not a hundred percent, but all sources indicate that this is happening. And if they announce anything else at this press conference next week, then it's just going to be such a letdown. (laughs) Well, you can't announce a press conference like 10 days in advance. And it's not that you signed Mark Cavendish and got a huge sponsor. Can you, can you imagine though? If you've got the entirety of the British press has made its way across the channel, is in Paris <laughs> for the B&B Hotels uh, announcement, and they tell us that they have just re-signed Alexi Goujard to another four-year contract. Can you imagine how, how annoyed? Can you imagine how annoyed they would be if they had all booked B&B Hotels just on the off chance <laughs> it was the same one the team were staying in? <laughs> Uh, it's probably happening people uh get excited mark cavendish is going back to the tour de france and that's a good thing it's a good thing for pro cycling so all right we have a we have a whole we have a whole nerd nugget left on the run sheet here but we've been going for an hour what do we think team should we leave it for next week or do you want to cut out all the British cycling stuff that probably <laughs> <laughs> most of the audience have no sort of skin in the game on? <laughs> no, no. You got you to sit through the, the tough times to get to the good stuff on this podcast. Mm. What do we think? We leave I, it? I, think, I think we can't not speak about this new bike that is claiming to be a Bianchi. Okay, let's talk about the Bianchi. We'll, we'll leave the, we'll leave the uh, who's riding what next year. We could talk about that next week. So... Tell me about this. Tell me about this Bianchi with holes in the front of it, Ronan. Yeah, and and this will actually be quite short because I can't actually tell you all that much because despite trying for the past week or so, I've been found it impossible to get really any prior news on this, no press release, no details on this bike until it was supposed to be announced exactly at the same time as this podcast was starting. Um, but then actually Bianchi announced it a couple of hours early and crashed their own website. So I still couldn't get any information on the new bike. Um, but the reason the website crashed is because this is probably not the kind of bike that really anybody was expecting from Bianchi. It's, uh, yeah, the, the Bianchi are calling it a hyper bike and it 
kind of is just by looking at it. It's a bit hyper all over. It's uh, certainly the top tier model is not UCI compliant. You would not be able to use it in a UCI sanctioned race because of some of the aerodynamic tweaks that they have made to this bike from from what I can tell. Um, yeah, it's the new Ultra, just the Ultra uh, from, from Bianchi. It replaces the Ultra XR4, which was one of the best looking bikes of the aero generation, um, but had dated quite a bit. It was a long time since that came out and, and a replacement was long overdue. But I don't think anybody really saw this replacement coming. The front end of it is sort of like Cervelo S5 like sort of e- dual stem thing going on. The the stem, yes, is a bit like the Cervelo S5, isn't quite as open, but has the same sort of you know upward angled steeply upward angled stem with um sort of opening as it meets the handlebar. Uh at least, you know, judging from the eyeball wind tunnel let's say it doesn't look like it might be quite as aero as the s5 variation Uh, but that's not even the biggest point about this bike because they've also added in what they're calling air deflectors Um, to me they kind of look like the is it the 500 what what was that movie 500 or gladiator or something it looks like from head on it looks like one of those uh roman uh ancient roman characters uh with a mask and that um but basically what they are are two panels that attach to the side of the head tube and are said to well i'll just read it straight from the website uh world exclusive bianchi technology the air deflector simultaneously reduces the drag against the frame and amplifies the work done by the handlebar by protecting the low pressure area it creates for the legs so it kind of yeah, it's uh, basically what they're claiming here is that when the airflow hits the front of the bike, it gets sort of propelled through this gap between the head tube and these deflectors which are stuck onto the head tube. And that rush of air creates a low pressure zone behind it that the rider's legs can then hide inside of and improve the aerodynamics of the entire system. And while the theory behind it works i guess the big question will be if whether it actually works or not on the road it's kind of there was a similar thing in formula one a few years back if i remember right it was a drag reduction device i think they called it where they like had a hole at the front of the car that sucked air in or didn't suck air in but allowed air traveling that air got forced through sped up and then shot out at the rear of the car and created a low pressure zone that sort of improved the function of the rear wing and i've always sort of been wondering when a brand would do a similar thing with a road bike and of course trek have done something like that with their new seat tube earlier this summer on the new madone uh that was said to sort of generate a bit of a vortex behind it from the low pressure zone from the air rushing through it which improved the aerodynamics of the whole bike and now bianchi have tried to incorporate a similar thing up front whether or not it works i don't know um i i'm sort of struggling to see in my head how something so close to the head tube would create a low pressure zone for the rider's legs to sit in given that the rider's legs will be so much wider set than the head tube would be um but yeah it's 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 innovative at least let's say we like seeing that from bianchi uh i mean perhaps the reason why you haven't received a press release is because we were slightly mean to them about their gravel bike 
I don't know. And they have historically built some of the nicest riding road bikes that I have ever been on. And so fingers crossed that this one is a good one. Yeah. Do we though? Do we like to see something like this from Bianchi, one of the oldest bike brands on the planet? Would we not just prefer yeah, that they I mean, as long nice as they bikes? continue as long as they continue making you know, just simple, beautiful bikes. I don't care. I don't yeah, exactly. Keep making especially Sima for me, and you can make this for your I don't know, for no, bike racers. We should just say, you know, Bianchi have given us some stats as to how good this bike might be in terms of aerodynamics and that's really where the big question marks lie for me because um well again i'll just read it straight from the website here but apparently this bike is 17 watts uh requires 17 less watts at 50 kilometers per hour which is a huge saving uh compared that's compared to the ultra xr4 which was already an aero bike uh so yes 17 watts a five percent reduction in cda in crosswinds a 45 second saving over 40 kilometers. Uh, apparently the bike weighs 6.8 kilos, which would be hugely impressive if that figure is accurate. And then lastly, um, perhaps the, the most difficult one to sort of comprehend is that apparently there's a 30% advantage over the best aero bikes on the market in variable wind conditions. And I have just no idea what that means. <laughs> Well, I guess we'll try to get one. And <laughs> we'll. Uh, I, I should say I do. I do love the fact that, that they've but... made a UCI illegal bike and an aero bike. That that is what we've all wanted to see. Is yeah. a, a, a an aero bike that does not conform to UCI regulations. Um, and while the new Ultra does sort of have quite a few sort of aerodynamic designs to it and it looks very futuristic i think and some of the only photos i've seen beforehand were all rendering so we were wondering does this bike even exist but there actually is a video of nicholas roach who's now a bangy brand ambassador of some sort riding one in the real world so it it does actually exist it is quite futuristic looking i just don't know if really the way they've made it uci illegal is actually worth there 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 maybe would have been <laughs> more illegal things that would have been more faster mm. i think it's cool mm. i i applaud them for trying <laughs> we'll find out ronan you've got your little like arrow sensor thingy we're gonna mm. go we'll get, you go ride it around and you can tell us how fast it is so we'll do that mm. sometime whenever we can get our hands on one it's it's for outdoor real world testing and yeah the the real <laughs> irish outdoor is about to set in for winter so that might not happen this year but it will happen at some point <laughs> <laughs> wait so you're 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 like it's literally gonna rain i'd say if it's not raining it's gonna be very me? blustery which is both those are severely hamper your ability to do any sort of aero testing you need nice calm dry conditions you come here or you know, there's just turn down another thing happening you know with yeah. good sunshine there usually so uh, very little wind from what i hear <laughs> I'll see if I can find the budget. <laughs> All right, we're going to cut it off there. This this episode has gone on long enough. Uh, go check out the website for a story on this new Bianchi. Right, Ronan? Maybe. We'll see. Uh, <laughs> make sure you head over, and if you are not already a Velo Club member, 
you're not already a subscriber, do that in the next week. October 20th, 27th, we've got that deal going on. 10 bucks. That's what a box party is. US dollars, uh, and you can get... Ah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you can get past the paywall for an entire year. Go do it. It's a good idea. All right. Thanks to both of you joining on the pod this week. I think we'll have a probably a bigger crew again next week. We just got a bunch of people on vacation in other places this week. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>